When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Ready? Play. Good afternoon. Good evening, good morning, as it is where... Oh, no. Good afternoon where you are, Caitlin. I'm getting my east and west coast confused. How are you doing today, by the way? I'm so well. Thank you so much. Good, yeah. I'm in uh, Germany, so it's uh, it's evening now. I'm just about to have dinner. But uh, what did you make of the Australian Open women's side, which is what we're concentrating on today in general? I'm so happy we are talking about the women's side of the draw because I have almost an unlimited amount of things to say about it. It was, for me, uh, hard to top. It was filled with drama, really, really compelling matchups, a preponderance of a lot of players at the top of their game, which is not always the case in Australia because it's so early in the year. Sometimes people are still injured. Sometimes there's... uh, an inability to really prioritize this swing of the year as opposed to later on. And although of course we had a few notable drop-offs before the tournament began, the field was incredible. And most importantly for me, for it compared to anything else is just the quality of the tennis. The quality of the tennis was fantastic almost across the board and especially in the final. So for me, I have nothing but enthusiasm for what just transpired down in Australia for the past two weeks. And, and Caitlin as well, I think uh, when you have a good tournament, a nicely balanced tournament and, and so many possible winners, if you like, uh, it's always good to have a, a good final, right? Absolutely. And I think sometimes we have, especially in women's tennis, seen a, you know, sort of lopsided final. I mean, I'm particularly thinking about how hard somebody like maybe, you know, Vera Zavonareva played to get to a final and then just to blank pretty much against Serena Williams or, yeah. you know, some of those Maria Sharapova finals where she was so compelling when she would win, especially the French open kind of later on in her career, but her matchup with Serena just wasn't really compelling. We even had for me, my probably favorite player of the last 20 years, Justine Henna won some incredible matches, but some of the finals that she contended weren't exactly the most competitive. So anytime you have a true, sort of draw where every match is sort of a a test for a player to get through. And both finalists in this case had to go through some really, really gnarly draws to get to the final. Sometimes your best tennis can be behind you or an injury or circumstance or nerves can sort of show their faces. I'm thinking specifically again about a player like Ons Jabur last year who made two finals and nerves in my mind were responsible for her not really competing 
as well as she could have for either. That didn't happen this past Saturday uh, for the women's final. I thought the matches and the tennis only got better and better. And by the time those two were playing, from the first point to the last, it was just absolutely as locked in as it could have possibly been. So I'm excited to talk about the final for sure. But I'm also just really excited to talk about the tournament because I think there's so many amazing storylines that really bode well for the rest of not only this season, but really, I think, for years to come because the field is young and they're all very, very, um, you know, they're getting better for the most part. We'll begin with the final and kind of work back. And, and as we work back, it'll be a more generic view. But um, I do want to start with the final as we just touched upon it. And uh, it was a final that I think had expectations. We were all excited about it. I saw somebody tweet an image of a potential tennis ball that was going to get bashed left, right and center. But so often we have this anticipation and then some of the finals you just touched on from yesteryear, we're then left a bit disappointed. But um, I, I, what I loved as well, uh, one final thing before I then throw the <laughs> tennis ball back in your direction, is um, we still didn't know how this was going to go until the ball finally falls. I'm trying to just remember the last point now. But, but basically, we've got the fourth championship point for Arena Sabalenka and we still don't know which way this is going because she loses the next couple of points and we're back on serve and you're probably going towards Rebecca in terms of the momentum. So that was also exciting. I absolutely love when a match truly is filled with so many momentum swings and also so much competitive equality. You know, one of the things I'm sort of on record about with the men's grand slam play at this moment is not necessarily how much I hate five set tennis, although there's lots of reasons that I don't like it. But one of the things that I really hate the most about it is it's so easy for those sets in the middle to kind of be run away with by one player or another. And granted, that's not always the case, but a lot of the time that third and fourth set can start feeling really inessential. And obviously that happens in the women's game too, even though the match format is shorter. What I love so much about this final in particular is Rybakina had an edge in the first set, but only just, and she really only served it out there towards the end of the first set. And you still didn't get the sense that Sabalenka was far off the mark. There were just a few points here and there. I think I saw a stat after this, the final that was Rybakina won 103 points and Sabalenka won 110. So just the idea that these guys were seven points apart in terms of their performance. And you're right. I think Sabalenka, especially the player that we've seen step to the line and have an attack of nerves, anxiety, yips on the serve, just pretty much anything you don't want at the later stages of a tournament to, to rear itself. And having been a former competitive player myself, although not in the pros, you know, there's not much worse than feeling like all of a sudden you've forgotten how to hit a ball, especially your serve when it's a weapon like it is for Sabalenka's. And seeing her come so close and then just completely fall apart in so many semifinal matches. And to your point, even towards the end of this third set, where she seemed to be seized by some nerves and some serving and some yips of old, um, and then working through that and then working towards, uh, you know, she hit an incredible first serve out wide. They had a great rally. Rabakina hit one of the hardest returns she could have possibly hit. Sabalenka picks it up, have a cross-court rally here too, and then Rabakina misses it long. Not much margin and not much errors from either player. Lots of winners and lots of initiative taking, which is about as good as I can imagine 
tennis being. When I talk about tennis to people who don't know who the players are or don't know some of the stakes, I want to be able to show them points that are just so compelling and exciting. And I think I could show this match to many, many people and say, you don't need to know anything about either of these players. Although the more you learn, the more it'll be interesting for you. But just on tennis alone and the tactics alone, this could stand up against, in my mind, one of the greatest finals probably ever competed. That is cool and not, uh, you know, it's relatively rare. So I'm so thrilled the quality was there from first to last. I think for the last game in particular, it also shows the beauty of the ad sort of um, scoring system. Uh, I mean, you and I, as tennis connoisseurs, we can we, we we sort of get very excited about the tennis scoring system. But I think in particular that last game, and like I say, one of the beauties for me in tennis is that you can be you know a few millimeters from glory one minute, and then half an hour later, an hour later, three hours later on the men's side. You can be, you know, staring down the barrel and, and perhaps lose the match. Um, but listen, anyway, let's get back to this final. Let's talk about Sabalenka in particular. Uh, I would like to know your thoughts on something that I actually believe in, and that is that I think we might be seeing a Sabalenka style of. I think there's a lot of competitors, so we're not going to see a calendar slam. I'm not. I'm not going down Steffi Graf, Martina levels of dominance, but we might see. A, a more relaxed Sabalenka now, and therefore a more dangerous Sabalenka. Because I don't think she's she's not one of these players that's going to lose motivation that we might see. I think that's going to stay. The edge will stay because that can go one of two ways. It can go down that route of oh, okay, I've achieved what I want to achieve. But I think the 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 enough tension and motivation will remain. But now she'll be a an even more dangerous animal in that I think she's going to have the right level of motivation and a little bit less anxiety. I love that. And I hope you're right. I mean, I think for me, I saw Sabalenka first when she and Belarus made that thrilling run to the final as Arenka and, and uh, Sasnovich and Sabalenka were on the same team. I believe it was like 2017 or 2018. It was, it was early and she was very young. And immediately I was struck by just how ferocious and fearless her play is. Anybody who likes aggressive tennis um, and appreciates the counterpunching style, but maybe doesn't love it and find it as thrilling as the sort of first strike tennis that I grew up in watching both Williams sisters, Kim Kleisters, Lindsay Davenport, Justine Henna, Jennifer Capriati, obviously Steffi Graf. You know, there's a real uh, amazing sort of boldness that you have to have to play that way. And I think where she exploded onto the scene and I believe won seven titles in a year. I mean, she just had an incredible, whatever it was, 2018, 2019, and played to me the match of the tournament against Naomi Osaka. I think it was in 2018, the year that Naomi Osaka ended up winning against Serena Williams. They had a real battle and uh, Naomi won it. I think it was 6-4 in the third. And I remember watching that match and thinking, whoever wins this match is going to win the tournament. This was the highest level. It was the most competitive And they really had, in terms of ground game, very similar sort of ideas about taking the initiative. And if anything, Sabalenka had better volleys and a little bit more of a kind of go for broke craziness that I love in my players. I loved it when I saw it out of, you know, Yelena Yankovic or Merit Safin, and I love it here. For me, her barrier to getting this first slam was really just having the confidence, I think, to play unrelentingly 
in the toughest of moments. And I think not only did she work her way through the yips mentally, especially on the serve, which is so hard to do. It's happened to me, it's nightmarish, but also biomechanically breaking down her serve and building it back up better. I mean, this woman was averaging a double digit amount of double faults per match. That is insane. It's about four games you you gift your opponent at least, sometimes maybe two, in a, in a match or a tournament where millimeters, as you said, or moments can make all the difference, starting with a two-love deficit it mm. is an amazing, amazing sort of albatross to carry with you. She broke down her, her serve, rebuilt it, and made it even better. Last year, she still made the top five in the, in the world and made the tour finals, despite the fact that she was basically unable to serve and was serving underhand by the end of the season. That's crazy. Now, a year later, I think both released from this sort of mental anguish and also having, I think, blown past a real obstacle, not only in winning the slam, but just getting to the final. To me, yeah. the most amazing moment was watching her win that semifinal against Magda Lynette, a match that she had all the pressure. Magda Lynette had no expectations mm-hmm. and could play really well. Sebelenka won the first set in a tight tie break. And then mm-hmm. this is exactly where she would have started to go on a real mental safari in years past <laughs> and didn't do it. And if anything, kept her foot on the gas and increased the amount of velocity she was going to play with, the amount of boldness she was going to play with. And you saw her run away with that second set. And as I watched her pump her fist after that match point, her shoulders relaxed and she looked like, okay, I've done it. I've gotten to the final. And I was so happy that after the first point of this final where she served a double fault, went back to the line, laughed at herself, and then Mm -hmm. served an ace, I was like, okay, she's really worked through some things. And tennis is so fun, especially with a player like Sabalenka, who just shows you exactly what she's thinking at all times, contrasting beautifully with Elena Rybakina, who could not be more stoic. So -hmm. the two of them, you know, real fire and ice. And you see exactly what the stakes are as they play across their faces and bodies. And, you know, I think for that reason, I think you, you're right. She might be uncaged now and ready to really go on a tear. We've had a kind of, to my mind, exciting in terms of variety, but ultimately in terms of champions, not that exciting of a field. It's really tough to get that excited about Iga Świątek, as good as her game is, as tough as her mentality is. Same, same, I would say for me with Ash Barty, incredible slice, great variety, love when a volleyer uh, who's won a lot of doubles, makes a great singles run. I like that complete game. But in terms of the personality, the fire, the excitement, it's it's a little bit missing, especially when they play each other. Contrast one of those players with a Sabalenka. An Iga Sviantek arena Sabalenka match is one that I would pop cops popcorn for literally every time. So my hope is that this is a real precursor for what's to come, which is now that she's pushed past this barrier, she's free to do even more damage, which is should be terrifying for the rest of the field. And it's going to be really fun for us to watch. The first game, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I think I, I said something at the time of this is so on brand, Sabalenka. <laughs> we, had a, we had a double fault, an ace, and I think a winner for the first three points. And I think she was leading 30-15. And that's the point when I said this is so on brand. We had a tearing the, the ball for the win on the third point in particular. Um, I, I want to come back to something you just touched on, Caitlin. You said it happened to you uh, as somebody who had this, this anxious moment when it comes to serving. Um, and I guess for those people tuning in that, that are, are casual fans, if you like, or have, a, have an interest in the sport, but maybe quite don't understand what we're talking about, is, is this anxiety and this difficulty in this moment regarding the serve, is it because there's like, four or five quite 
unorthodox, complicated actions going on. And the final one, of course, is it's arguably about precision. And is there is it is it because it's like a you know a, a 30 second thought process in terms of the moment you receive the ball to the moment you strike it? It's a uh, you know it's like hitting a penalty in soccer terms, if you like, you know, a uh, uh, hundred times in a match. I think that's everything you just said is a great. Uh, comparison. I think you have too much time to think about it. I think doubts can creep into your head. And if you're having a rally and maybe, you know, one of your, your strokes has begun to break down, maybe you get tired, maybe your legs aren't there. There's still ways to kind of dig yourself out of it. And also you're reacting in the moment, which you've practiced hopefully enough times that you don't have time to think and for doubts to creep in. When you're stepping up to the line to serve and you can't tell if you're going to miss the ball by 10 feet or that it's going to go into the top of the net or you're going to maybe hit a great serve. There's nothing quite that I've experienced in sports that have felt as unsettling as that is. And I'm somebody who, uh, despite my relatively short height, had a pretty big serve as a weapon and not being able to rely on it when I wanted to uh, at times was it shook the rest of my game to a very, very deep uh, sort of deeply anxious place. And I think it's really, really hard to, you know, sort of not think of the negative if you've had that experience where you've had a couple double faults, maybe you've had a couple high pressure situations and all of a sudden it's in your mind, like, oh God, don't double fault. It's really hard to think, okay, I know I have to toss and go up after it and use my legs and try to reach and extend, you know, all the things that you want to try to reprogram yourself into thinking about uh, can be... <laughs> you know, as much as you want to do that, it can be really, really hard to put into practice. Um, and so I speak from some personal experience when I say having a serve that has gone off the rails is so fundamentally uh, terrible that I'm shocked and frankly impressed that she thought to work with a biomechanics expert who literally fixed the yeah mechanics of the serve because the way she's described it is not only was it a sort of mental block and problem but also she was able to strip away some of the inefficiencies of the motion and you know a serve is a complicated motion it takes most of your body to to hit a serve you have to have the legs you have to have the non-dominant arm that tosses it the toss itself is prone to going on adventures if you get tight or maybe it shortens its motion you have to jump up after it and and extend with your full rotation and body i mean you know we can go into i think some of the mechanics of tennis but it's not an easy thing to do it's not like hitting a layup or or even a free throw in basketball um, it's probably much more akin to a penalty. And it's also coming at a time when, you know, it's it's important that you do it well. So again, I'm sort of baffled that she thought and impressed that she rebuilt it. And also she managed, like I said, to have a really good year last year, despite the fact that her serve didn't do her any favors. And so I have to think all of those things combined, she really was at the depths and did the work to kind of climb back up, which is why I think for me watching her play this Australian Open Fortnite, really since the beginning of the year where she, I don't think has lost a match. Nope. She deserved this because of how hard she'd worked. My, my podcast co-host Renee Stubbs for whom our podcast is named was describing seeing her arena Sabalenka at Cincinnati, at Washington, DC, at these places where they would go. Um, she was coaching Sam Stoser for part of last year and Serena Williams for the, for the mm -hmm. notably for the U S open seeing Arena Sabalenka working with her coaches on micro movements on a, on a far court with, you know, a hopper of balls over and over and over fixing the serve. That's the kind of stuff that's not glamorous. It's not fun. It's not, you know, posing for TikToks or doing any sort of like 
fun extracurriculars or getting, you know, tons of money from a sponsor. It's like hard, laborious, unsexy work. And I think that's adds for me to what is so amazing about what she's accomplished. And it's been really fun to watch. I think that explains a lot of her joy at winning um, because of how much she kind of went through it in the last year and a half. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And um, you were just one final thing, because I think we're going to move on to Vibakana now, but one one final thing I'll pick up on in regards to some of the things you've just said. Um, the, the serve itself as well, and, and um, what do I want to say? Uh, oh, yeah, you can't hide. It's, you know, it's not like you can just say, I'm not going to serve for half an hour, or I'm going to take a couple of weeks off serving if you want to compete. Um, I also thought it was interesting a year ago, one or two people were saying maybe she should just step away from the tour for a few months or or a few weeks. But I, I, I don't know. I was thinking, and I'm an amateur. I've never played the, the game at any serious level, if you like. But I was thinking probably you've got to play through this. You've got to, because, uh, you know, you can step away for two months, but you're still going to step on the court two months later going, I wonder how my serve's going to be today. So hats off to that. I do think, and I also like the way you mentioned the North American swing because, and I, when I say North American swing, I'm sort of talking about August, September time. I, I think that for me, uh, 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 an upward curve turning point for her was the match against Kai Kanepi when mm. she was, uh, I think, facing match points. She was also a double breakdown at, at one point, I think, in the second set. She got a net cord, as it turned out, on, on match point. She wins that match incredibly. She goes on and has a, actually a good US Open, if you like getting to the semi-finals, albeit that she was a breakup in the third set and wasn't able to, to see that through. She has a great WTA finals, in my opinion, and loses the final. She beats Igor Sviontek in the semi-finals there and, and, and loses the final, but it was a really high-quality match against Garcia. It wasn't like she was overcome with nerves. So I just saw that, the upward curve, and as a result, she then comes into this year, and as you say, she's on a, I think, 11-match winning streak now, uh, only losing one set, and that was in the final. Um, let's talk about her opponent in the final, um, Rebekina. What do we think about her? Where, where is she in the landscape of, of 2023 women's tennis? I hope a big part of it. I am really excited when a player, especially who plays with a style that sort of, you know, is risk taking and interesting and a good mix for the sort of existing field kind of comes onto the scene and then can back it up. So in my mind, Elena Rybakina, who's I think been a little bit of a dark horse in the, in the women's tour only because she's a little young. She wasn't, you know, even I think in her home country of Russia, a highly touted youngster so much so that five years ago, and she's only 22. So this is as a teen, she sort of repatriated, to Kazakhstan in order to get more support from the Federation. Obviously there's lots of implications politically for that because most of the Russians and Belarus, well, all of the Russians and Belarusians have been banned from team competition and from Wimbledon last year. Rybakina, even though she's Moscow born and has family there, was able to compete at Wimbledon. And mm. as a result, she should be in the top 10 
but because the WTA and ATP decided to strip points from Wimbledon, she wasn't. So there's a lot of things that this woman has had to contend with. And without sort of getting into the politics of it, what's interesting to me is that she's still flown under the radar. I mean, she was the, uh, you know, a, win a slam winning champion who was relegated to outer courts, uh, unlike Yelena Ostapenko, unlike Igor Sviantek, unlike a, a few of the other players who had a better billing when court assignments at the Australian Open were being given out. Elena Rybakina was sort of relegated to the outer courts, which means smaller crowds, which means usually less sort of advantageous scheduling. You know, it's sort of a respect thing. On one hand, she's not a massive star because she doesn't have, I think, some of the familiarity and name brand recognition. And, and she's a little bit stoic and quiet and in interior. Her tennis is anything but that, on the other hand. Her take back, her power, her serve, her cleanliness of motion mm -hmm. is about as good as you can get it's how you would teach it um i love arena sabalenka's game it's fun it's filled with flair she moves around the court she's won a double slam with elisa and mertens but it's a little bit extraneous it's extra which is what she's like that's great rubakina is about as ruthless and efficient as you can possibly mm. get and what that means for people who don't play competitively is that when pressure situations arise, when you're getting tired, when you've maybe had a couple matches in a row that have been really, really like real barn burners and you're in a third set late in a tournament, the tendency for your stroke to kind of break down and abandon you and become a liability is higher if you don't have very good technique. That is not the case with Elena Rabakina. She is about as efficient as she can get. And I would love to see her forehand become a little bit uh, a little bit technically better, but that's such a small quibble because for me, winning Wimbledon, doing it so authoritatively, although you could make a very good case that Ons Jabir donated about a set and a half of that Wimbledon final to her, she took it in terms of balls to the wall tennis. And it's really nice to see her back up uh, a slam win with a really, really solid run here. And I, again, she didn't lose this final. Irina Sabalenka just won it. And the fact that she had to go through three former slam champions in Igor Sviantek, yeah. Yelena Ostapenko, who has been playing incredibly well and likes the hard and very fast surface in Melbourne, as well as Victoria Azarenka, who a couple, a couple points go differently. And that's an all Belarusian final with Azarenka Sabalenka. Like to me, the path that she took, both of them had pretty rough draws in terms of having to really play a plus tennis from the moment the tournament started. Rubakina had a bit of a harder draw and she played match after match impeccably well without blinking, without making mistakes. And when she got to the final, listen, she contended every single one of those points and lost to a slightly bolder hitter. Not, not much to, to change about that performance. Both of those women played so well, which is why that final was so epically good. Uh, yeah, I would add to that as well that I just see Rybakina now in the coming years as being one of those players that is that is 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 much better than solid, but there's a controlled aggression to her that she's gonna we're gonna find. I don't know what happened to her in New York. I know she went out in the first round. I think it was there. I didn't see the match, but now looking back, that seems such an aberration compared to obviously winning Wimbledon, getting the final here, and seeing. I, I saw her match against Daniel Collins about ten days ago. And that was a, a sort of a, a, an eye opener for me in that, oh, okay, she is going to, uh, Iga's going to have to bring her A game if she's going to compete with her or, or, or beat her anyway. And um, it wasn't a surprise for me to see her beat Iga as a result of that Daniel Collins performance. And she's just, she's kind of a, 
uh, and again, I, I hope this doesn't sound uh, patronizing, but she's kind of just a few. When Sabalenka is absolutely on it, probably Sabalenka wins. When Sabalenka is a few percent short, yeah. uh, you know, Rebecca wins. And I think that's going to be her going forward. She's probably going to pick up a couple more slams, but I probably would say they're most likely to come at Wimbledon partly because of the style of game that she has. And uh, yeah, I, I just think that you're going to have to bring your A-plus game to beat her. And if you do that, great. But otherwise, she's going to pick up a couple more slams. And I think she's just going to be a constant threat on the hard courts and, and the grass throughout this coming coming years. I think when, I think you're totally right. And I think when you think about a couple of things that you just said that are really interesting, which is, I think it's exciting to see a player who's so good, so young, and who has some gains to make. I think there's a little bit she can do on her forehand to improve. And I also think she can and should, especially because those fast courts, especially on grass, are going to favor her big game off the ground. She can get better at volleying. She can get better at coming into the net. It's not bad by any stretch of the imagination, but Sebalenka really does have the edge there as well, especially because she's won a slam at doubles and contended uh, very, very well in the doubles game as well, which, as we all know, helps a ton with your forward movement and your ability to put away the point at the net. So for me, it's exciting when you see upside. To me, Coco Goff is another player like that who's getting steadily better, but still lots of ceiling to sort of continue meeting. I also think I have long loved and one of the missions of Racket and what we're trying to do is to sort of celebrate the fact that tennis is exceptional when you have a whole cast of characters who can come in and out of narratives, whose styles and backgrounds and demographics are so different. That to me has always been one of the most exciting things about the sport. No sport is as global and as varied as tennis. I remember Billie Jean King once saying, you know, there's no, there's no real rules about how you have to play tennis. You can hit two hands on both sides. You can hit a slice forehand like Monica Niclescu. You can return on top of the baseline or you can stand 10 feet back like Dominic Team or Rafael Nadal does, right? There's very little blueprint for how you have to mm -hmm. play the game, which is amazing. I also think we miss not having surface variety. To me, the fact that Wimbledon has slowed down its grass courts, the fact that the okay. US Open has, uh, has made its surface more uniform has actually kind of made the tournament especially on the men's side, the tournament's a lot less interesting. You know, I don't think, uh, I think the sport was more interesting when the surfaces were varied and you had somebody like Sabalenka or Rabakina really excelling in grass or, or somebody like Steffi Graf. And then when it go, got over to clay, you had your Tomas Moosters or your Barisategis or your, uh, you know, Gugas. And on the women's side, obviously, you're Arantxas and Gabriela Sabatini's, you know? For me, the fact that the surfaces are so different is fun and cool. And I actually think the variety of slam winners should be celebrated and fun and great. You know, that's really when you want your Ons Jabir to, to exceed. So we haven't really had this kind of first strike tennis on the women's side. And we don't really have it now on the men's. What I like so much about this is... You can see these two probably doing really well on a lot of hard court and grass court finals. But when it comes to clay, maybe the ons or the sort of egos who have more variety and the ability to kind of change pace, to me, that makes tennis so exciting because it's not a foregone conclusion. When you have such dominance, it just gets really boring. And I think that has, you know, in, a, in an interesting way, been sort of, a I hope, a precursor of what's to come with some big babe grass court specialists and then, you know, the ability they have to maybe 
you know, contend, but not necessarily beat your, your more counterpunching strategic, uh, sort of dirt dogs in the, in the Schmiantex of the world. That is going to mean the tour is interesting and varied and nothing is a foregone conclusion. The only thing I find really boring is when there's no drama, there's no excitement. And the men's final had absolutely none and didn't deliver in any way, shape or form. Whereas the women's was, was about as dramatic as you could have hoped for. So I think yeah. to me, this is hopefully a real, a real big, interesting preview of what, what we have to look forward to. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. A couple of things here from Matthew in the chat there. I, I, I By the way, I probably agree with you, Matthew, that that countering you, Caitlin, is that that one of the concerns on the men's side and to a lesser extent the women's side is I, I love the variety. I I know what you mean in how that Wimbledon has slowed down now to the extent that Rafa Nadal and to, to a lesser extent Djokovic could be competitive there. And I suspect in a different era they might not have been. Uh, but I would also say that... Um, Okay, <laughs> I would also say that that, that the uh, the serve bot element is a is a concern, yeah, uh, as well. So that's that's the thing, but probably more on the men's side. Uh, Matthew, I'll address you very quickly on this. I think we can see several rivalries potentially emerging, maybe between seven, eight players, not just the two that competed in the final. But I know Caitlin is short of time, so let's get this pace up and running. Let's talk about <laughs> Azarenka for one or two minutes. Uh, thoughts on her tournament and is. Is this a return for her or is this a, is this a goodbye, if you like? I'm not sure. And I don't, I hope it's, I hope it's the former. I loved the way she contended that U.S. Open and Cincinnati run a couple of years ago where she ended up winning Cincinnati because Naomi Osaka dropped out and lost in a pretty good final against Naomi in the U.S. Open. We hadn't seen so much of her since she, before she became a mother. So having her back on the tour, I think whatever that was, 2020 was really great. I think it was the pandemic year US Open because there wasn't any fans and they played Cincinnati in the US Open the same uh, same sort of month long period. What I was so excited to see about Victoria Azarenka is I think a return to form. She was, interestingly, I watched her play uh, last year and you know the, the big hitting, the great movement, the intensity was always awesome. She kind of looked a little detached and disconnected and kind of going through the motions. And look, this season is too long. They have too many tournaments. There are so many obligations. I get why you might be want to just kind of phone it in once in a while. No harm, no foul. And for a player like Vika, who's famously intense in practice and in every match, you know, phone, her phoning it in looks like, you know, more of an effort than I could ever make doing anything. I do think, though, hearing her speak about how she admitted basically that she'd kind of lost maybe the fire and decided to to go in with an open mind this year and change her mentality a little bit. To me, that's really cool. It, it shows you that mm. there's always new ways to relate, to keep improving. And I find it really inspirational that after so many years of doing this job and doing it really well, there's still excitement and, and a desire to challenge herself. And it's not just about chasing titles, but, it, it you know, enjoying the experience, wanting to do what she sort of 
can dream of on the tennis court instead of just playing a match by the numbers. And for me, the best match that Victoria Azarenka played, no shame in losing to Rabakina. That was an incredibly good match, and she lost to, that day, a better player. What I liked the most was watching her play an incredibly tough and, frankly, I think extremely, and I, this is maybe a little bit uncharitable, but Julin, the young Chinese player who had a great run, took out Maria Sakari as well as a, a couple other formidable names in the draw, was hitting big, very bold, but not necessarily sustainable tennis, not the way that Sabalika could sustain it. I don't know if we'll see more of her, but playing against a surging player who's got all of sort of the intangibles on their side and thinking your way through the match and being patient and weathering storms and deciding when and how to, you know, apply the pressure, when to counterpunch, when to go on defense, when to go on offense. To me, that Vika match was vintage in the sense that she thought her way through a lot of problems. And I absolutely loved her resilience in, in that match in particular. And if you want to see one of the best points of the tournament, go and look up the Julin Victoria Azarenka match point where she hits a running cross court backhand, a passing shot against again, a player who just didn't blink and, and is reminded me of other sort of like surging players who have one great tournament and then kind of dis- disappear into the ether, like maybe a Melanie Udan at that one U S open or, or others. And Vika didn't blink and found a way to kind of work through that. And that showed me how many tools and how much sort of experience has given her game. And I hope we see a ton, ton, ton of it because Victoria Azarenka is, uh, you know, I think instrumental in making the tour better. And I want to see her, you know, deep into tournaments all year round on every surface. Cause I know that that's where she really belongs. She's uh, up to 16 in the rankings now. And um, yeah, fingers crossed that we can see some more deep runs from her at slams. Uh, I've put Pagula and Goff in the same kind of bracket. And I'll, and I'll tell you why, uh, not just because of their nationality, but because they're both very, very different narratives and very different stages of their career and very different angles. But they both keep getting to similar stages at slams, mm. with the exception of Goff's run, perhaps in, in Roland Garros last year. Um, they both sort of got this sort of fourth round quarterfinal barrier, if you like, that as soon as they come up against a top, top player, they end up losing. And I think maybe Pagula in particular, the, the, the pattern is a bit more worrying or am I, am I pressing the panic button too early? Yeah, I guess I know what you mean. I think she can hang in there and have big ground stroke rallies with just about everyone. And she's kind of gotten, I don't want to say unlucky, but there's a dimensionality to her tennis that might have a little bit more of a, a, a lower ceiling maybe. And I think while she has reached more of her potential more quickly, um, obviously she's a couple of years older than Coco Goff, who's still a teenager. Um, I kind of thought, I was a little surprised that she didn't get farther in the tournament and I would love to see her add some dimensionality to her game. We know she's a great doubles player. Um, She made the WTA Tour Finals in singles and doubles last year, which was awesome. And I feel like uh, Pagula, she's only really been at the absolute top of the game really for the last year, maybe year and a half. So let's give Mm -hmm. her a little bit more time before we decide that she's she's failing to live up to expectations because I think for me, she can beat anybody on any given day. And if anybody needs any more evidence, just look at her routining of Iga Shviantek, um in the run-up to the Australian Open. Coco Goff is interesting to me because I actually think she has succeeded too soon. And I don't mean that as, a, as an insult. She's wonderful for the game. She's incredibly compelling 
competitor. She's amazing as a spokesperson for the game. Like I'm delighted she's here. To me, she does everything that uh, she should be doing at 18, but she's had a little too much success, which in my view has kind of created too much expectation. Her game is still very much in progress. She's made a lot of improvements to her serve and forehand, but they remain not elite. And that's not a dig. It's just at this level, if you aren't able to play um, on every surface with every sort of advantage, there's still room for improvement. And Coco Goff on her serve and forehand has a lot of way to go. The fact that she's such a good competitor and she's smart and has nerves of steel has sort of, I think, obscured the fact that her game isn't quite where it needs to be. I would love to see her work on it. Just like we were talking about Sabalenka with her serve. I'd love to see her keep improving her game. I think for every reason we can expect her to do that. So it's not so much a critique as just... It, she won't win a slam until probably until she fixes what could go wrong in a very f finite amount of circumstances, but barriers to a slam nonetheless, right? Like we saw Andy Murray improve his game just so that he could beat the other members of the big four and everybody else was a significant drop off. But in order to do that and contend for slams, which he still didn't win very many of, he had to get elite so that when he faced Djokovic in the final, it wasn't a cakewalk. Um, so I think that's where Coco can go. And I see a lot more ceiling for her, but also a lot farther to go, if that makes sense. Uh, I know we're down to the last sort of 60 or 120 seconds, Caitlin. <laughs> I know you've got to get on, but I just want to touch on, on two players. But I think one could be super fast. In fact, I think it could be a one-word answer. Um, Sviontek, panic button, yes or no? No. No, she's right. fine. This is not her surface to win. And we'll see her back on the clay. Toot sweet. Sviontek, tick. That brings me to the last one. I'd love to talk about Magda Lynette, but let's just give her some love and, and, and great to see her in a semifinal. Great run. Maybe, Fantastic ma run. Maybe, maybe we'll see some more from her. But the final player I want to speak about was the one that I mentioned to you before, which is Maria Sakkari. Um, she's a player close, close to many people's hearts. We, we, we love seeing her on court in the last few years, and we, we saw her reaching semifinals. We know how much this sport means to her. And the defeat to Krajcikova in, in Paris in particular, I know she took really hard. I, give me something to cling on to or, or even, you know, let me know your thoughts on, on her and, and, and where we're at with her right now. Maria Sakkari should have two slams. She should have won the U.S. Open that Emirata Kanu won. She should mm -hmm. not have lost to Leila Fernandez, whose game is very one-dimensional. And she should not have lost to Krajcikova having match point because she could have beaten Pavlyuchenkova in the finals. To me, Maria Sakkari has all the physicality, all of the upside, all of the energy, all the fitness that she could need. I don't think it's a situation where she's missing any game. I think she's missing a little bit between the years. And I think this is the time for a new coach. I think there's a new voice that needs to be heard in her box. I think she needs to be able to work through, as we just talked about Sebelenka working through some nerves later in the tournament, and potentially adding a new massive weapon. I mean, I hate to say it because Renee probably doesn't want this job, but I would love to see her work with Renee Stubbs, who brought an ineffable quality to, you know, Serena's last run and who really helped Christina Plushka or Carolina Plushkova get to that elite level a couple of years ago. I think she needs a new voice and I think she needs to talk to somebody who's been there who can really, I think, inspire the best out of her and not have her sort of wilt at the late stages of a tournament because i think those two matches in particular those two slam performances which should have seen her raising the trophy at the end to me were an indication that she deserves to be there her game is good enough but something 
needs to change and she needs some new voices. And I think that is a very fixable problem. I'm not panicking about Maria Sakkari, but I am saying I think it's time for her to make a change. All right, I'm going to ask you one more question. And again, I think this could be a one-word answer. Is Sakkari winning a slam? I hope so. Yes. Let's say it. Let's put it out into the universe. Let's go, Maria Sakkari. I met her last summer in Athens. I went to her club. I ran into her there. She could not have been cooler, nicer, hardworking. She deserves it. I would love to see her name emblazoned on a trophy. So let's give her the benefit of the doubt. She's going to pull it together, and she's going to lift one of those trophies, which is what she deserves. Caitlin, I'm going to stay live for another few more minutes and address some of the questions in the live chat, most of which uh, I think even I can probably pick out and answer <laughs> because they're about day nap matches and night matches. But I just want to say a big thank you to you, Caitlin. Hopefully we'll see each other again later on this year. You got and, it. Uh, thank you so much, John. By the way, just quickly, where can we find you social media-wise and Racket Magazine, etc.? All of it is on the Racket socials, Racket Instagram, Racket Twitter, and RacketMag.com. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Caitlin. Take care. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Okay, I will address uh, some of the points in the live chat we made uh, or have been made over the last sort of few minutes or the last 40-odd minutes or so. I've got some pasta waiting for me for dinner, so I will probably only stick around for a few more minutes. Uh, Brian, by the way, great to have you on board there. Has Maria uh, Sakkari's moment passed? Probably not, but I don't think she has the mental toughness to emerge on. And that's that's the question. Has her moment passed in terms of being a top 10 player, being a WTA finalist. Of course not, but I think she wants a lot more. And, um, you know, a Grand Slam is is what it's all about. Uh, uh, Ghosty, uh, nice to see you. I'm sorry about the fact that you're, you're trapped in a art shopping. I think that means a shopping mall, I guess, or, or something. Uh, anyway, that's cool. Matthew as well. Great to see you on board. And by the way, Matthew, I think I'm, I'm with you in that probably a bit more on your side. Now Caitlin's gone, I could probably say this because I'm probably a bit more on your side. I agree that the uh, the variance is great and it's one of the things that I find beautiful about the sport, but I'm actually quite pleased that Wimbledon has adjusted a bit to make matches a bit more interesting, to give people the chance to play different types of game and we don't just have, you know, serve bots uh, on the men's side in particular. Um winning and getting to finals, etc. cetera. Uh, but yeah, of course, Wimbledon uh, slowing down in 2002. I remember I went to Wimbledon my first for the first time in 03. I watched uh, Leighton Hewitt play uh, Karlovic uh, in the first round. And it was my first time at Wimbledon. I ended up seeing a fairly legendary day in that uh, uh, I was there on center court. I think Hewitt won the first set, but ultimately lost in four and was the first and maybe only Time a Wimbledon winner on the men's side, at least it's gone out in round one in the um, open era. Uh, and hi, Jane. And make sure, by the way, everyone, you hit the like button. Subscribe to the channel if you're new. And also, you can now join us uh, as a member and uh, become a part of the uh, Talking Tennis community and enjoy many, many perks. There are different levels, if you like. It's all mapped out for you, but the top level will enjoy give you the opportunity to enjoy exclusive footage matthew yeah i I, there's so many players i never learn on uh basically i'll back a player i'll back a player and i'll back a player and then i'll suddenly waver and not back them and then that's when of course they have their deepest runs uh hi janey uh as well goff is only 18 yes definitely uh i think we're we're well aware of the fact that her and pagula as i say are running into this barrier and maybe 
uh, we need to be more concerned about Pagula. By the way, I'm going to just touch upon Magdalene. What a great run that she had in getting to the semi-final. Uh, from her perspective, it, the fear is this, or the the concern is, is that that is that is her slam run moment, if you like. Uh, she's a bit younger, but you maybe you have to say I had the same sort of Tatiana Maria vibes from her semi-final run last year, etc., um, etc. Et Let me know your thoughts on that um, as well. Uh, I'm going to come to Maria Sakri, and maybe I'll come back to to those players, Tatiana Maria, but particularly Magdalenette in a second because. I'm with you, Matthew. Um, I've not met Maria. Well, I had a press conference with her and I did pose a question, but I, I don't think that falls into the meeting point. But that was at Wimbledon last year. I am at the a point of, of being worried about her and maybe her time has passed, which is why I think it's 50-50. By the way, I've got a question in the um, on YouTube, which is in the live poll, where you can vote whether Sabalenka will win another slam or not. But... The question could also have been, as in this year, I think I said, I think the framing is is this year. I'm not quite sure. If I'll, I'll have a quick look at that now, um, see where we're at in that poll. Uh, we've got 75% of people saying, will she win another slam this year? Yes, 75%. Wow. Um, but that question could also be, will Maria Sakari win a slam? Um, anyway, let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Uh, yeah, you are British and you had to support Tim Henman. Uh, yeah, I know, Matthew, Michael, and I was on the Tim Henman train. That is for sure. Um, let's see. Let's see uh, how the 2023 season will pan out. Saba can win another major in the future. Absolutely. I think, as I touched upon at the beginning, I do think that that now... Uh, probably will happen. And I don't think, I think with Sabalenka, it was always going to be, be a case of zero or several, if you like, or multiple in, in a way. And maybe she'll end up with one and I'll be, uh, be made to eat my words in a few years from now. But I, I actually think for, for me, it was always zero or, or two plus. So when I say multiple, I mean two or more. Uh, any final comments here in the live chat? Oh, night matches, day matches. Michael, uh, yeah, I'm with you, by the way. Who was it who said get rid of them? Um, Matthew, I think it was. Matthew, by the way, we agree on the Wimbledon thing. Uh, don't get rid of night matches. Oh, no, I love them. I love them. I think we need to restructure them. I think Roland Garros, if they're going to have one night match, for example, particularly if it's a men's match, you need to start earlier. Uh, if a scheduling becomes an issue, Start, we start on a Sunday at Roland Garros. Why not start on a Saturday? You know, and, and same for other slams. They can start on the Sunday or even the Saturday, uh, if you like. Um, I'd be up for, say, at Wimbledon, uh, what would be great. Start on the Sunday at Wimbledon. And I tell you what, just have two matches. Just have the men's winner from the previous year and the women's winner from the previous year. And if, if for one reason or another they're injured or unable to compete, maybe the world number one or, or, or something like that. But just have two matches on the Sunday at Wimbledon. Let's start and make it a 15-day tournament. Why not? And and French Open could also start on a Saturday. But listen, uh, nine matches, no, I love them. Uh, I think maybe, Matthew, I don't know where you're located, but if you're in, if you're in the US, maybe the night matches at various tournaments become inconvenient in terms of the timing. And I get that. I don't know. Maybe you're, maybe you're in Europe, Matthew. I don't know where you are located. But um, no, I'm uh, I'm very keen on on keeping the night matches personally, and I know Michael is too. Uh, 
what's this here? John, no man in the open ear has backed up their first major uh, by winning the next one in the calendar. Uh, how about the women? Uh, Matthew, honestly, I don't know. By the way, Michael Walker is our is our top man on that side of things, so maybe he can uh, let us know. Make sure you hit the like button and subscribe to the channel if you are new. I have no many no idea how many likes we've got on YouTube right now. Maybe someone can let me know in the live chat. I am two or three minutes away from concluding uh, this show, so you've just got a couple more minutes to send in a super chat as well. Uh, you've also got a you've got forever to join us by the way but you've just got a few more minutes left to send in a super chat to support the channel for all the work that that we've done over the last couple of weeks and will continue to do throughout the year and i'm very very excited about that um but just quickly i'm going to see if i can address this question no man in the open area that's true because i remember that being a big narrative regarding um daniel Medvedev on the men's side that he potentially would win his first slam and win the next one um i'm just trying to think first time uh, slam winners. Um, I mean, Azarenka obviously won it a year apart. I think it was in Australia. Uh, what about Serena? Her first slam win was obviously in the US Open of 20, no, 99 maybe. Was that her first slam or 98 at the US Open? So then did she win Australia? So she won it in 99. And no, she didn't back it up uh, by winning the next slam. She actually went three years, I think it was, without winning the next slam. And her next slam, curiously enough, was the French Open. Um, how about that, ladies and gentlemen? So she wins the US Open in 99 and then doesn't win another one until 2002. And that one was the French Open. And then she goes on a 11-year gap before she winning, winning again in 2013. Um, so those are the, the sort of my first ones that spring to... Oh, Venus Williams did. Thanks, Michael. That's what you're here for, Michael. That's why we love you. So you can bring in comments like that. And Michael, I want to see you at the US Open next year or this year. Hopefully you you, you follow my meaning there. Okay, listen, uh, everybody, um, make sure you hit that like button. Make sure you subscribe to the channel if you are new. Uh, thank you for all of you stopping by, by the way. Thanks uh, for also backing up the year there. Matthew, there you go. You've got your answer, albeit it didn't come from me. It came from uh, Michael. So... Uh, in the year 2000, I'm just going to have a look at Venus. What did she do? She obviously won. Uh, did she win Wimbledon? Was that her first uh, her first slam? Uh, let's have a quick look at her um, and see how she got on. She won Wimbledon in 2000 and then the US Open the same. Yeah, and I'm sure Michael's about to say that in the live chat. Everybody, thank you for stopping by. Make sure you hit that like button. Uh, Matthew, they're giving a big round of applause. Don't forget to subscribe to the channel if you are new. And thank you for stopping. Bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.